The Charles Adler Show starts now. It's great to have Matt Gurney on the show from time to time. He is one of the most articulate voices in this country in the field of politics and specifically uh, when it comes to issues like the military. The military is what everyone is discussing these days because of the Middle East. Matt Gurney, along with Jen Gerson, is the founder of The Line, which is a terrific substack, and it's also a very, very well-rated, highly-rated podcast. It's called The Line, L-I-N-E. Matt Gurney, welcome back to The Charles Hathler Show. I should ask you right at the start before we get into because you mentioned my podcast. Can I swear on this one? Is this PG? No, is this I, I, I don't. I, I really, I'd really rather not uh, do the swearing thing. I just find uh, swearing, with all due respect, I find swearing in general uh, intellectually lazy uh, um, for for people with vocabulary like yours. I, I never, find it emotionally I, soothing. Do you? Particularly right. these well, days, well, go ahead and soothe yourself, but let's not soothe yourself too often. <laughs> Well, I'll, I'll refrain for the next half hour. How All about right. That? Uh, so you wanted to say something about the line, no doubt. Not much. It's just uh, we, I mean, I, I'd love to tell everybody, <laughs> subscribe <laughs> today. But more to the point, it's just um, we, we've been tagged uh, accurately with the little E for explicit on our podcast because I think it was at the point where I could probably control myself, but I just gave up getting Jen try not to swear so for me it was very simply yeah you know what we're, we're just gonna have a sweary podcast and over the last few years it's come in handy all right well no no doubt jen enjoys uh sharing a swear or two with you uh, or two yeah or two or end up <laughs> all right uh well let, let actually before we get to things like the middle east and, and its effect on on many countries including our own um why is there generally more swearing in, in media these days or social media? Is it, is it simply because uh, there's no fear of the CRTC or is there something else uh, going on in society that requires the, uh, the outlet of swearing? I, I just think it's a generational thing. Um, I think young people swear more than older people. And there's a generational switch going on where uh, the guys uh, and girls who would have been more the old school never swear uh, do it as Barbara Frum would have done on the CBC. They're they're just fading out, and now you've got a generation <laughs> that's come up in an era of Howard Stern and and Sirius XM with um, with different uh, editorial standards and a culture that just seems saltier to me. And I think some of that trickles through. I, I don't read much into it. Um, I, I get I get emails occasionally from people saying, "Why is there swearing in your podcast?" And I said, "Because I thought that was the best word in the moment to express the depth of my feeling." All right. Well, I swear like a trooper off uh, off the air, off podcast, off public, whatever. But I guess I was uh, raised old school. You mentioned Barbara Fromm, uh, one of my uh, intellectual uh, mentors, uh, and uh, yeah, you know, often the question in my head is, you know, what would Barbara do? And uh, Barbara probably wouldn't uh, swear. But I guess it doesn't matter. That was then. This is now. So let's uh, let, let's go forward. There is an aspect of what's going on in the Middle East right now, which is having a uh, deleterious effect in in Canada, specifically on on certain communities, and even more specifically the Jewish community. I understand the Muslim community is also uh, vulnerable here, but but it seems that some of the massive uh, demonstrations that have been taking place have generally uh, spewed anti-Semitism. Uh, One can play games with this whole anti-Zionism is not anti-Semitism. But in, in this case, you know, the word Jew is heard often 
and Jewish uh, shops are clearly being uh, targeted. So I just don't want to waste time on this business of oh well, aren't they really only being anti uh, anti Zion? I don't I don't want to be uh, I don't want to be silly about this. I'm having a hard time these days separating the genuinely stupid from the conveniently stupid, and it's exactly to your point where if someone is going to seriously tell me, or well, pardon me, I'll rephrase that. If someone's going to sincerely tell me, oh, we'll leave open how serious it is. But if someone wants to actually tell me that a, a Jewish-owned restaurant is the appropriate venue to demonstrate your concern about the humanitarian situation in Gaza, I will accept you at your word, and I will conclude from that that you're an idiot. <laughs> and I won't know if you're genuinely an idiot, or I won't know if you find it convenient in that particular moment to pretend that you are incapable of understanding the difference between these Israel Defense Forces and the Landwehr Cafe in Toronto, where I had lunch today, and it was excellent. If you either cannot tell the difference between those two things, or for whatever personal, professional, ideological reason, pretend you can't, then I am going to treat you like pawn scum or at least the IQ version of that. And I'm not going to hesitate. And I have a rule that I'm, I'm finding it. See, I'd really like to swear in this particular moment. Yes, but I can I tell. I can tell you're, 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 you're just millimeters away from a swear. Uh -huh. I have a rule that I am doing my best to adhere to, which is that I don't debate the Middle East. I don't argue about the Middle East. I don't try to change any minds. I will accept everyone at their word. And I will simply say that we live in an era where everyone's word, very much including my own, there will be records of the positions we take. And whether it's you and I, Jaw John, on a podcast, or Fred Hahn of QP deciding to go out and celebrate the glorious rape resistance, we should all be taken at face value. And I look forward to all of us in the years to come standing behind the positions we take in, in the weeks and months to come. Matt, I, I don't pretend that you speak for progressives, but I can't for the life of me understand how anyone can see themselves as progressive when they're spewing uh, Jew hatred. So, so help me understand why many progressives, for whatever reason, uh, you know, they're against uh, homophobia, transphobia, racism, you, you name it. But for some reason, they give anti-Semitism a pass. I'm not suggesting all progressives do but a significant number have in, in, in recent days. Why? Because they don't mean it. That's, I mean, like, I, I, I'd love to chew the fat on this one with you and kick it around a while, but I think sometimes you got to go to basic principles here. What we're seeing here is the fact that the unequivocal beliefs of, the, of many within the progressive coalition, not all of them, I agree with you, there has been some actual moral clarity from certain people, and I, I value it. But when I see someone who in a different context would treat believe women as a mantra and a test for one's decency as a human being, deny the evidence of mass rape during the pogrom two weeks ago, you're, you're telling on yourself. And as I said before, I'm not going to argue with you. I'm not going to show you pictures or medical examiner testimony or eyewitness testimony. I'm going to thank you for your time. And I'm going to thank you for the, for the honesty that you have shown me in telling me what you really are, and I will give you the reciprocal courtesy of taking you at your word. And, you know, I was thinking about this today. 
thinking about this at some length today. I, I probably should have been doing anything else, but I was sitting in my living room, my dog in my lap, and I was thinking about how we need a society-wide truce where we're going to agree whether or not the worst elements do or do not tarnish a social movement. And I would like, I want to meet the apparently incredibly rare Canadian who thinks that what happened in Ottawa with the convoy early last year was not represented by a guy with a Confederate flag. And who also thinks the guys outside the windows of the Jewish owned restaurant in Toronto do not, represent the protest movement in general because it seems to me a whole lot of people believe one of those things is true but never the other and i think we need a society-wide truce on this one for no other reason that would make your like you not talking to you but like if you were one of these people out there who thinks one of those things was bad and the other is an exception you your life would be easier you would have more time and energy to devote to your own personal enrichment and spiritual fulfillment if you would just stick to an intellectually coherent standard that made the slightest bit of sense. So one of the things that uh, hurt my heart uh, more than anything uh, when October 7th happened, as you, you call it, the uh, the pogrom, for people who don't understand the term pogrom, P-O-G-R-O-M, uh, it is a, a connection to what happened in uh, Russia uh, in the 19th century. Uh, for those who remember the movie or the play Fiddler on the Roof, it was about uh, the persecution of Jews uh, and the massacre of many Jews in Russia. It's one of the reasons why so many Russian Jews tried their best to get to Britain, to Canada, to the United States, uh, to get out of, uh, out of Russia. And so the massacre of Jews in Israel is being known by many, including uh, Matt Gurney, who has written in the National Post and many other newspapers and uh, has been on radio stations coast to coast and is now the host of The Line. Uh, Matt Gurney, among others, is calling it a pogrom. But one of the things that hurt my heart the most is knowing full well that this would result in a huge counter-offensive from the Israelis in Gaza and for weeks and weeks and weeks, what we would be hearing is that the Jews have it out for the Palestinians, that the Jews hate the Palestinians, that the Jews are massacring innocent Palestinians. Was that on your mind at all um, a little more than two weeks ago when October 7th happened? Almost instantaneously and never for a, never not for a moment since. It's difficult to believe, and I don't want to speak for you, obviously, uh, but um, it's it's difficult to believe that for all the nonsense about how Hamas represents the Palestinians, Hamas didn't 100% want what's happening right now in Gaza to be happening. It's impossible to believe that Hamas didn't know that this was a cold-blooded attempt to trigger Israel to do in Gaza what it's done before, but to do it in spades. Agree entirely, every word of that. And I think... You know, last week, we're, we're recording this uh, the week after there was an explosion at a hospital in, in Gaza, and that explosion was quickly attributed, attributed by what was politely referred to in Western media sources as the Gazan Health Ministry, or as I prefer, prefer to refer to it as branch of Hamas, because Hamas is the government in the Gaza Strip. That explosion was attributed to an Israeli airstrike. 
and international organizations, um, Doctors Without Borders, the New York Times, others ran with that. They accepted that at face value. And the people who did that aren't stupid. They've got egg on their face now, but they're not stupid people. What their problem is, is that they have a bias. We all do. I, I try to be aware of mine. I do not deny that mine exists. But I think the events of October 7th took a lot of people who are not natural ideological allies of Israel. And it forced them into the uncomfortable position of thinking, yeah, you know what? The Israelis got a point this time that what has happened here is so outside the norm of civilized behavior. It was so outrageous that any nation, any nation will respond with military force to rebalance the security situation so that it can never happen again. And I think for about 10 days, <clears throat> people all over the world were stewing in the fact that they were uncomfortable publicly or privately being on Israel's side. And the opportunity came along for those people to be like, aha, Israel's the bad guy again. They blew up a hospital and they couldn't accept it fast enough. From New York Times headline writers to Doctors Without Borders to a few members of the government, I grant that the prime minister was careful in his language, but not everyone was. They were palpably relieved to have something to be mad at Israel about again. And a lot, like I said, a lot of them got egg on their face when it turns out this was not an Israeli airstrike. That is what you, you mentioned to me, kind of the, you, you felt heart sick when you were seeing what was happening on October 7th. And you said, you find it hard to believe my old friend. I felt heart sick too. I don't find it hard to believe. I find it very predictable. Now more with Charles Adler. This is Hamas and uh, Hamas wants uh, to make Israel look as evil as possible. So how to do that, commit the most evil, heinous acts you've ever committed against the Jews, and Israel will respond because Israel has no choice. Now, I don't uh, want to call you a military expert, but you've got a hell of a lot more military expertise than the average Canadian, far more than I do, Matt Gurney. Can you explain to me whether or not there has ever been a counteroffensive in an urban guerrilla war, which is what it is in Gaza, without many civilians innocent people, unfortunately, perishing. How does Israel fight Hamas in Gaza without killing civilians? There's no way to do it. It's impossible. In other recent conflicts, uh, the second Persian Gulf War, cities like Mosul or Fallujah, some of the civilian population was able to evacuate and other times and places in history for various reasons, it has been impossible um, for the civilians to evacuate sometimes because they've been effectively prevented at gunpoint by their own governments from evacuating in Gaza. There's not really anywhere for these people to go. And I've been looking at historical ratios of, um, Mo Muat, I don't know how to pronounce, but military operations on urban terrain, those kinds of operations. If you accept that Hamas has 30 to 40,000 men under arms, and that's the number floating around, I don't, I don't, I don't have any way of verifying that, but that's just the number I've been reading. And if you look at the historical ratios of how many civilians die compared to military losses in a conflict, 
And if we assume that Hamas will become combat ineffective when it's lost half its force, so we're looking at 15 to 20,000 people. I could sketch out a scenario for you where we're going to see 50,000 Gazans who are innocent civilians die when that operation happens. And the really bad news, Charles, is that that is the low end. It can go a whole hell of a lot higher than that. And this is not unprecedented in human history. And I, I, it's, I get accused sometimes, often, um, including in my own household, which is discouraging, of being unfeeling. It's not that I'm unfeeling. It's just that I have the misfortune of knowing stuff on an academic or an intellectual level that a lot of people don't. And a lot of people are presented with horrible things and they react viscerally and emotionally. And I, I understand that. When I was looking at what was happening on October 7th, a big part of me was horrified. But a big part of me was also analyzing the tactics of what I was looking at using 15 to 20 years of accumulated professional knowledge. And I was talking about this with some buddies including ones who's a doctor, a surgeon. And the doctor says to me, if I look at a gruesome wound, you'll be horrified. I'll be analyzing it. And I was glad he said that because that's kind of how I've felt in the last few weeks. And I'm thinking about what's going to come potentially, likely in Gaza over the next weeks or months. And I am part terrified because it's going to be one of the worst things I think we've ever seen. And because of smartphones, we're all going to see it in glorious high definition. But I'm also analyzing it, and I'm trying to think of what the likely range of civilian casualties is, and it runs from tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands. And that's just using broad historical comparisons and historical norms. So the, the question becomes, uh, when Israel is satisfied that it has sealed up enough tunnels, that it has killed off, off enough uh, of Hamas's uh, infrastructure, when it has uh, disabled Hamas's military wing, which is what Israel claims is its objective to prevent October 7th from ever happening again, never again, never again. That's what this is about, according to Israel. So if Israel accomplishes those military, those strategic objectives, how does Israel ensure that Gaza is governed in the future, and the future hopefully is only a month away or only two months away, but hopefully not a year or two years away, because then your worst case scenario happens. But whenever it is that power changes hands in Gaza, and of course, first it'll change hands from Hamas to Israel, Israel needs to do some sort of handoff. Who does Israel hand off to? Who can Israel trust in Gaza? No one. I think my gut feeling is they're going to smash Hamas flat, incidentally, smash a whole lot of the rest of Gaza flat. I think they're going to leave. I think they're just going to pull back out. They're going to create some kind of free fire Berlin wall style barrier around Gaza. Um, and they're going to do a better job of it this time. Uh, Cause that's what they thought they had three weeks ago when they didn't. And they're going to, I, I hate to borrow a phrase from recent U S politics, but they're going to build a wall. And I think they're going to leave it up to the Gazans to figure it out. And you've probably heard the really brutal saying that's floating around, um, the different variations of it, but it's cut the grass or mow the lawn. And it's, it's this cynical shorthand used by some Western military analysts and observers to describe Western military operations in the Middle East. Every so often you, get, you go in, you cut the grass and you whack things down to a 
manageable level and then you leave and then it all comes back up and then you go in and you mow the lawn again. Israel's going to mow the lawn. And I, I, I'm thinking about this. I mean, do you hand it over to the Palestinian Authority in, in the West Bank? I don't think the Palestinians in the West Bank are going to do the Israelis any favor by being complicit in this. Like, they're not going to want to be seen to be collaborators. I also don't know if the Fatah uh, group in, in West Bank would have the hearts and minds of Gaza. Do you hand it over to the United Nations? I mean, to ask the question is to answer it. I mean, no. <laughs> <laughs> there, there are rotary only, in my neighborhood better organized in the UN. But, but, but Matt, if you don't, if you don't hand it off to someone, whether it's uh, to uh, an international agency like the United Nations that would then hand it off to uh, something like like uh, the authority in the West Bank, if that doesn't take place, uh, you know, anarchy is is what happens, right? Because power abhors a, a vacuum. So you get anarchy, and then you get various groups, including remnants of Hamas or remnants of Islamic Jihad, remnants of organizations that we've never heard of. But the point is that in a, a situation like that, uh, you've got a civil war going on, and you have to honestly ask yourself the, the question, we've got to brace ourselves, as bad as all of this is, how bad would it be if it was a civil war, Palestinian on Palestinian, especially when it comes to food, water, you name it. I mean, I just can't even imagine, no matter how bad this is, a civil war, as in the case of all civil wars, would be even worse. You sure you don't want to swear? It's your it's your mind, it's your mouth. No, I mean, hey, I was, I, I'm going to behave. I was offering you the chance to, no, I, I, to finish I, that sentence. I want um, to, but I'm, I'm obviously res restraining myself because of, let's call it the Barbara Frum rule. That the sentence you just laid out there of what is a, a, a plausible scenario to, that will unfold in Gaza, that sentence would be in no way harmed and arguably enhanced by a good, short, sharp F-bomb at the end of it, because I don't disagree with a word of it. I mean, like, let's just run down the list here. There is no natural successor to Hamas in Gaza. There's no government in exile. There's no large secular civil society organization. There is, there aren't like some guys at universities in Washington and London, like we dropped to such notable success in as the Afghan government after 9-11. There's no version of that. Fatah exists in the West Bank. I would be, hey, look, I don't know, maybe, maybe they can be induced to it, but I don't think they're going to be in any hurry. The Arab world has never cared about the Palestinians. They're, they're a convenient heat shield for domestic political criticism but you know we, we hear so much about the blockade of gaza but we don't hear that much about egypt being a participant in the blockade the egyptians aren't going to welcome a, a huge number of palestinian refugees and they have absolutely no desire to administer gaza i mean the, i think the israelis would love it if egypt rolled in and took it over either as an occupied area or annexed it well just just, just to be clear israel wanted egypt to take back gaza many years ago and Egypt also Bank Egypt also wanted to give the West Bank back to Jordan many years ago. Yep. But the, the these countries, which always claim to be supportive of the Palestinians, a never want refugees, and no, never want to control any of that territory. They don't. I mean, I'm sure they'd love the territory, but I, I don't think they want to deal with millions of radicalized Palestinians. And I mean, look, I, I don't have we don't have time and I honestly don't have the depth of knowledge to do a full lecture on this, but it wasn't that long ago that the Jordanians were fighting their own Palestinian factions. And, yeah, and, it, and it was, it was brutal. And many of the 
people who were in the middle of that, ordinary Palestinians, ended up being refugees and they took their families to the West Bank. And despite everything else that's said about Israel, Israel did not prevent Palestinian refugees from Jordan, did not prevent them from coming into the West Bank. I don't, someone asked me the other day uh, at a a social event, because I, I guess that we really wanted to raise the mood, bring the energy up in the room. So someone decided to talk with me about Middle East politics. And someone said to me, how bad can this get? And I just sort of sighed heavily. I didn't, how bad can it get? It can get real bad. And I said to you before, like I sketched out a scenario where I could see 30, 40, 50,000 dead civilians in Gaza. And then I kind of dropped the bad news on you that that's the low end of what it could be. And then you start thinking about like, we haven't even touched on the fact yet that I don't even know how many radical groups there are in the Middle East that are waiting to see if this is their moment to step up and and either topple the governments in their own country or to go after U.S. military interests in the region to jump in against Israel. We haven't talked about Hezbollah in Lebanon. We haven't talked about Iran. The, the possibilities for escalation here are not literally limitless, but they're awfully damned high. And... We talk about the Israelis here. The Israelis are juggling a couple of strategic problems now. First and foremost is obviously their southern front is not secure. And this is a country that exists to secure a homeland for the Jewish people. And right now they objectively have failed to do that. So they need to, both as a matter, I think, of pragmatism, but also of political messaging. They have to show the world that we're still the tough guy. You caught us by surprise. Terrible things happened. But they need to send a signal, not to Hamas, well, I mean, to Hamas, but not only to Hamas, to everybody. Don't mess with us and look what we're capable of. But they're also in the strategic situation here where I don't think they're going to get out of this without facing fighting on multiple fronts. Like, I'm pleasantly surprised that we have not seen large spread outbreaks of violence in the West Bank. And we, we, you and I started talking at the beginning of this about the situation here on the home front. We've had a beautiful young Muslim boy in Chicago murdered based on what law enforcement has said locally was um, uh, uh, his landlord who had been radicalized and enraged by events in the Middle East. Just on the weekend, we had a rabbi murdered in Detroit. And I want to be very careful with this. We don't know what that was yet. And the police have been saying at this time, we have nothing to say about possible motives. But even if someone hears about that and jumps to a conclusion, that's more fuel on the fire. We've had the incidents here in Toronto that we've been talking about. The ground invasion hasn't begun yet. Imagine Chicago, Detroit, Toronto, Montreal, New York, Miami, London, Paris, Berlin, Madrid. What are those cities going to be like on day 81 of the ground invasion? Our only hope is, and this is a terrible hope, but our only hope is that much of the world becomes bored with the story. We live in an era where boredom is both our enemy and our friend. And we live in an era where everyone wants to change the channel sooner rather than later. And who knows what else will be taking place. I mean, when the Ukraine-Russia thing, I'll call it a thing, Mm -hmm. people call it a war, it's 
Oh, it's 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 well beyond that. It's the rape of Ukraine, in my opinion, and we've never had nearly enough publicity on the thousands, not hundreds, yeah. the thousands of children that Russia has kidnapped from Ukraine, and Lord knows what condition those kids are in in Russia right now. But that was the big thing, and people got bored, as you know, got bored with that story. And now we've got Hamas and Israel, and who knows whether Hezbollah will jump in, who knows whether Iran will jump in, who knows what will be happening in all, all of these cities. But what we also don't know is we don't know what other international conflict may be on the horizon. Because if there is one, then that will take the place of, of Israel versus Hamas. You want to know, because here I am really lifting everybody's mood today. I'm, I'm here I'm here with a, my usual smile, which can light up a room. But let me tell you uh, something I was thinking about this weekend. COVID hit during the winter, 2020. The Ukraine invasion was February 2022. In both those cases, after a couple of months, it got nice out. And we had barbecues and parks and sunshine and vitamin D. And we could see friends again, even during COVID. We had to meet outside, but we could see them again. A natural lifting of the human spirit was built in by orbital dynamics because we zip around the sun and we're off axis. Our little cute little planet is not 100% on axis and we have seasons and good weather was coming. This war in Gaza is starting in the fall and we are many, many, many months away from the pause and the natural enforced change of routine of a Canadian summer. We're going to pause our continuing dialogue with Matt Gurney right here. Matt, thank you very much for this. Good luck with the line, with your show on Sirius XM, with your columns, with everything that you do. Thank you very much. Going to go have a cup of tea. God help us all. Catch Charles Adler Mondays on Real Talk with Ryan Jesperson. Twice a week in the Winnipeg Free Press. And every day at criermedia.co.